And you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show. And who do we have on the line right now? Hello. Are you there, callers? We hope so. Please, identify yourself. Who are you? This is Stephen Blush, a writer and producer of the film American Hardcore and author of the book American Hardcore. And we also have... This is Paul Rackman, uh, director and producer of the movie, the new movie, American Hardcore. Playing right now across North America, right? That's correct. In Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, American Hardcore is playing. And Stephen, you also wrote the book, American Hardcore. Could you tell us? The Neos! What can you tell us about the Neos? I played a whole bunch of Neos there from Victoria as your intro. Yeah, well, you know, there are there were some great bands in... Uh... In Canada, back in those days of, you know, we, we have, of course, point to DOA and, you know, kind of coming up with the term hardcore in their, from their Hardcore 81 record. And, uh, you know, bands like the Neos or, you know, more East Coast like the Nils, you know, there's, there's, there was some really good music at the time. So it's cool to hear you play that. Paul, what is American Hardcore? Well, American Hardcore is a movie that was... Um, it was really inspired by Stephen's uh, book. Stephen and I knew each other as far back as, as the early 80s. And, um, you know, we had both, um, after our college days, we had both moved to our native New York, moved back home to our native New York. And, um, you know, uh, years, fast forward years later, I, I knew that Stephen was writing the book, and I just really had this, this vision, this, this, this idea to, to, to make a film. And, um, you know, Stephen was somebody who really, you know, took this movement, this early 80s, very underground movement, and, you know, kind of contextualized it with a beginning, a middle, and end, and gave it a, a true history. And, um, you know, it, it took somebody like him to, to, to analyze it and, and, and research it for five years. I think Stephen probably started the book around 95 or 96 to really contextualize this and you know, from that, I, I just had this vision of, of a movie that was kind of an extension to the book, of a movie that was the story of these people in their own words, like a first-person account from the people who started the bands, who started writing this music. And, and I, I think those, um, those interviews we had were more like conversations, because we really wanted to tap into kind of this emotion that they had about what they had done in their youth. And that juxtaposed with, with this um, intense uh, archive footage and the music and um, photographs. I, I just had this, this, this feeling for a very authentic film. Stephen, had anybody else approached you about doing a movie? Did you get any other offers to do a movie? Well, there actually was one other offer, but for, for Paul, it was, it was really a no-brainer, uh, obviously, because he came from the scene. You know, we weren't major players in the scene, but we were participants at the time. And I was a kid promoter in Washington, D.C., and uh, I knew of Paul because his roommate, Alec Peters, was the kid who promoted hardcore shows in, in Boston. So, uh, you know, I knew of him doing all the early gangrene footage and, of course, making, like, the bad brains eye against eye, you know, and all these, like, amazing videos. Who else uh, asked to make a movie of the book? Um, it, was, it was just, like, another pers- uh, filmmaker. I can't remember the woman's name. She's a Korean-American filmmaker who's made a few films whose name escapes me right now. But I did have a couple meetings about that. But there was no interest in this. I mean, the one thing I found from working on the book... And, uh, you know, working on this film is, it all, it, it all had to be done in the spirit of the bands, which was do it yourself and without any money, you know, like there was no interest when I started writing the book. There was like not one single publisher who had any interest in this subject. And I have to admit there were many times when I'm sitting up there for hours and hours late at night writing about bands like Void and Negative Approach and Detroit's and then wondering if anyone would really give a damn. And, uh... Are you, you know, in any? It was, I found it was there, but you know the, the whole thing about hardcore to me, and hopefully we get across this in the film, is that yeah, hardcore was a music, but it was way more than music. It was like that way of life. It was like it was a sense of community. It was an ethic. It was a you know a stand against conformity. You know that was, and you know that that to me is what hardcore 
was all about. Stephen, you mentioned you were a promoter. Are you in in any of the footage that's in the movie? Can we see you in the movie? Because there is no narrator. Are you in the movie, Stephen? <laughs> I think the only thing you'd know, there's nothing of me in the early, in the, uh, of the early days. I was never, I was always kind of in the background, you know, kind of sitting in the, I mean, in the back of the room kind of kid, you know, I was not, you know, I was definitely not like stage diving and slam dancing, but I was just kind of in awe of the whole thing. How about and, you, know, you? Just moved by it. How well, about you? How about you, Paul? Are you well, in any of the footage at all? Actually, because um, well, I know I would, you filmed. You, know, you filmed a lot of the footage. I know you filmed a lot of yeah, the footage. Yeah, there's actually two things that you, if you really, uh, we're not in the film at all, at all in terms of old footage. But if you're really into the film, you could see about a half second both of me and of Paul in the film. Uh, one time when I'm interviewing Springer and Chris Foley of SSD, you get a glimpse of me, and you also get a reflection of Paul in the behind Jack Grisham while he's talking, like in the in the glass behind him. So the, if you're really our, looking for it, you could find us. But yeah, that was in, in, in terms of stage in diving action, straight up 81. No, you don't see us there. Steven. No, I was behind the. You know, I picked up a Super 8 camera because you know in the early 80s I went to my first hardcore shows that my roommate was promoting at places like the Gallery East in Boston and places like that, which were really off the map. You know, these weren't clubs. They weren't, these were Sunday afternoons shows that were organized by 17-year-old kids that cost a dollar. And there was like six bands playing. And I, I bought a little plastic Super 8 camera that I used for years. And, you know, I, I would go up and, you know, kind of in, in the pit. It wasn't called the pit then, but I would be like, you know, slam dancing with this camera. And some of the, some of the uh, Bad Brains footage I shot with that camera from within the crowd, you can see the blurry kind of weird weirdness of it. And it, it's just really cool. So I was, I was there, but I was behind the camera. Were you a target? at all, Paul. I love that in the movie where one of the bands, is it the middle class, said we eventually became a target. Were you a target with the camera? No, the early days wasn't, you know, you weren't targeted. It was small. It was intimate. Um, I think that in the later years when uh, the scene, you know, grew to, to become bigger, particularly in Southern California, like 84, 85, 86, you know, maybe then you, you became a target, but in the early days, and, and the early days is really what we tried to concentrate on in the film, um, you know, the footage is rare, not many people are shooting, and it's not very well documented, but I, I was never a target, no. Stephen, how many fucks are in the movie? Oh, man. Um, we, were, we were shocked that we were even able to get this film out. It's so filthy. Um, it's like everybody uses the F word as a, a noun, an adjective, an adverb. You know, it's, uh, there's some, some of the New York guys use the, use the F word like five, six times in a sentence. Yeah, it's, um, we, should, we actually have a transcript now, and uh, we should try to do a word count on that. I, I've been wanting to do that, but we never did. There's a lot. Everybody uses it several times, and there's, uh, we, we did about 120 interviews overall, and I think 98 of them are in there, so figure everybody uses it at least four or five times. Um, that's the, a lot. The interviews are very fascinating, and again, we're speaking to Stephen and Paul from American Hardcore. If anybody has any questions for Stephen or Paul, it's 604-822-2487, 604-UBCCITR, and of course, you can go and see their movie right now in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I liked your movie, especially for the little tidbits that I learned. Like, I learned a new word, housed. Harley. <laughs> what is the word? Yeah, what is the word housed that I learned? What, what, do you, what, what does it mean, or what, what do you like about it? No, what I mean, did I learn? What is that word? We beat him down. Yeah, that's know? a very New York street word of, like, you know, picking a fight and, and beating him down, you know, winning a fight, you know, housing them. Um, it's, uh, you know, I, it's street language. It's New York City street language. And the New York hardcore scene, um, as opposed to, let's say, Boston, Los Angeles, and, and, and Washington, D.C., or, or, or certain cities in Canada, in New York City, it was an urban inner city movement. It wasn't a suburban thing. And these kids were tough. They grew up in, like, you know, what was, you know, the East Village, which was really used to be called the Lower East Side, Alphabet City, living in squats. And, if you were lucky, if you were from a broken home, yeah. as far as a lot of those kids go, it's really amazing when you think about like 
how you know these are these, this was like Lord of the Flies, like kids like creating their own society with nothing, you it's, know, and it was it's you know, a great... like like HR says, you know, it was the jungle, you know, and it really it, that's really how it is, and you know, you see the difference between all these people, you know, but you know, you were asking before about all the the language that all these people use. A lot of it's just because you know they're just very comfortable. You know, we, 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 you know, these are all people we've known from over the years. You know, it's like when I, when I put on shows, you know, I would say probably, and, and Paul's roommate, you know, between, between the two of us, I bet you about 25% of our interviewees had slept on our floor, collective floors at one time or another. Yeah. I really you know, like the little tidbits that you guys had, like the word housed. I learned the word housed. I also learned that little tidbit, thank you for putting that in the film, about how gangrene bought their cabs off Megadeth, the gangrene-Megadeth connection. <laughs> yeah, that was in the later days when gangrene, when, when that was in... Crossover. Um, in 1986, crossover. gangrene actually wins the Boston Rock and Roll Rumble, which is like a, a radio station-sponsored battle of the bands. And that was, really was kind of the beginning thing, yeah. of the end for gangrene, where they they really kind of start trying to become a more commercial big rock band. And they get signed by Roadrunner Records in, um, you know, uh, mid-'86 or, or something. And they go out and go, we're going to be this big heavy metal skateboard band. And they bought, you know, Megadeth was getting rid of their equipment, and they bought it. And they were all empty boxes. <laughs> yeah. What sort of feedback have you got at festivals, celebrity feedback, like Steve Buscemi, he came to one of your gigs, did he? Steve Buscemi came to a screening, is that true? Yeah, he Absolutely. came to our New York premiere, and it was particularly exciting for him because he brought his son, who's in a band. And uh, his son is in a, a, a three-piece band. They're called, um, what's the name of their band? Fiasco, they're 15-year-olds. 15-year-olds, uh, they have a band called Fiasco, and they were truly inspired and excited by seeing the film. And I think Stephen... Uh, um, Steve Buscemi, I talked to after he he, he really liked it. He um, you know he's kind of of the age where he was, you know he brushed up against this stuff in his youth, you know, so he could identify with the movement a bit. How about at Sundance? Was there anybody else that came out? I mention this because every time I interview kind of a famous actor, I ask him about punks in Hollywood, and I asked David Cross about this, and he said the only punks in Hollywood are him and Elijah Wood. What other punks came out at Sundance well, that are probably from was... Hollywood just to check out the movie? I'm just curious about this. Yeah, Sundance. I don't know what famous. Pe- I'm sure there were some famous. We people brought come... you know. It's funny. The, the, the hardcore will always have this effect way about it. It's like. It's popular, there's people into it, but never A-list. You know what I'm saying? It just isn't that way. Like, we packed all our premieres, and we, every party we've ever, you know, event we've ever done at any festival, it's fucking packed, and it's great, and it's awesome, but, you know, as a red carpet affair, it's kind of a joke, you know, because, like, at best you get is, like, the bad brains. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but we definitely rub shoulders with people like Timothy Hutton, and, uh, you know, a bunch of starlets at all the parties. At oh, Sundance. who was it who they saw Paul, who's the client of our lawyer? Um, who was that? Tim, Tim Robbins? Is that who saw it? Yeah, Tim, Tim Robbins and his wife, um, uh, no, not Tim Robbins, um, well, whatever. We'll remember in a few minutes. Sorry, Ed. Yeah, Tim Robbins well, we're not very starstruck. Yeah. Uh, that's okay. I guess what I'd like to know is, in American Hardcore, you interview Flipper and you interview Moby, but I still don't quite understand. Does anybody in the band Flipper remember Moby being in Flipper? Because Moby got a lot of mileage by saying, I was in Flipper. Does yeah. anybody in Flipper actually remember Moby in Flipper? Because in your movie, American Hardcore, it seemed like the guy you were interviewing did not remember Moby in his own band. Right, and Moby actually talked to me about that. We had Moby uh, as a guest at our New York premiere, and he actually got on stage and, and, and um, played Sex Bomb with Flipper and uh, kind of brought back the, that, that, air, that, that moment for him live. But I think that, you know, people like Bruce Luce and Ted Falcone, they were just too messed up in the head to really remember anything that happened that long ago, you know, particularly when they were on the road, you know. It was, these bands were, were so destructive and so drunk and whatever else they were on. There's no, it's all a blur. So, I remember Ted um, Falcone you know, back then. As far as they were concerned, you know, Moby was some little kid who got on stage and sang with them, and they couldn't, you know, by the time they got to the next town, they couldn't remember who that was. I think that it was a case of just, 
burning, burnt-out brains. Now, you guys were talking about A-list. Well, excuse me, A-list, hardcore has gone A-list. Because, Paul, I read that you got a hardcore curling iron. Oh, <laughs> no, it, this, is a fu- this is a funny story. We were... Um... And the reason I mention this, let me just do a little preamble. Last week in an Ardwater Human Serviette radio show, I interviewed Vanilla Ice. Now, I credit Vanilla Ice with bringing in the word extreme, to the extreme. He had that right. in one of his yeah. songs, one of his albums, and then it became extreme sports. Nobody wants to give Vanilla Ice credit for bringing <laughs> yeah. extreme. Now, hardcore... The, the turns curling up ice story inter- is really funny because we were at the Toronto Film Festival, which we had a fan fantastic time at. It's a great film festival. We were very well received. And we did a lot of our, our press up there for, for launching the theatrical release of the film. And, you know, you go to these festivals as a filmmaker, and, and they, you, everything you do, they give you like a bag of gifts. And one of the things we've been talking about in our interviews is how, you know, the, the hardcore comes out of an era where you know, like today, the words revolution and hardcore mean different things. Like, you know, now you can hear like they're selling cars on television with those words, you know, be hardcore and buy Chevy, you know, or things like that. So I got this bag of gifts and I open it and it was it was all like like women's stuff, you know. So 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 my fiance was excited and I pull out this package and it's a curling iron and it says hardcore on it and it has like um it has like primitive tattoo motif motif designs on it. And I was like, well you know, this is it. Now they're selling curling irons and advertising them as hardcore and I, I couldn't believe it. In American Hardcore, and again, we're speaking to the directors, the writers, the people behind American Hardcore, 604-822-247, 604-UBC-CITR. If you have any questions from the home of Hardcore, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, coined by DOA Hardcore 81. In the movie, you have interesting contrast of people. You have Vic Bondi, and then you have Jack Grisham. I love Jack Grisham from TOSL. He has said punk is to screw girls and steal. He, he's also said, like, getting hurt is healthy. You have an interesting sort of difference of people in there. What is the difference between Vic Bondi and Jack Grisham? Well, I, I think what, what you're describing there is really what that hardcore really wasn't a particular ism. Hard, hardcore, you know, we were growing up through the horrible Reagan era, and there was like a... And that, there was a bunch of kids out there who knew something was wrong, and they had a voice through punk rock. And that's kind of what hardcore developed as. And it was like an umbrella group for like misfit kids, be it left wing or right wing or black or white or gay or straight or druggy or straight edge. You know, it was just, you know, disaffected youth kind of coming together. So it was probably the only place in the world where you could have two guys like that hang out together and be in the same room and not think there's any irony about it all. But hardcore was everything. It was like the best and the worst of humanity. What's ama- and that's a celebration of that. And what's amazing about American hardcore is you guys got to the root of it. You guys got to Greg Ginn. I haven't seen an interview with him ever or in a very long time. What was Greg Ginn like? Greg Ginn of Black Flag. Did you have to bribe him with dope? What was he no, like? You know what? We're, I'm a huge Greg Ginn fan. You know, I'm a huge Black Flag fan. I pre-Henry Rollins, post-Henry Rollins, you know, SST records. I'm definitely a fan. And, you know, Paul and I went to go visit uh, Greg a few times, and, you know, we kind of wanted his blessings on this project, you know. And I told him, you know, this is going to be the one time where it's not just going to be, you know, the get in the van story, you know, and I just wanted to tell it right, and I just wanted his, his blessings to help to help us do this. And that that's how we did it. But it was very hands-on and a bunch of trips down to the SST office in Long Long Beach. And, you know, don't forget, we live in New York. So, you know, it was just when we would get to L.A., we'd take the drive down to Long Beach and, you know, and I, we, I, I, I mean, we did the, you know, and then we did the, the interview and, you know, and then we took care of business and we, I, you know, I, we did it all that way. I really felt we there was a, some respect for us from Greg because, you know, we had both kind of had contacts with him. I mean, when I made the Eye Against Eye video, um, I really just gave it to SST. You know, I made it myself, and I said, here, guys. You know, I remember I think I called SST, and I think Chuck Dukowski answered the phone, and I said, hey, I just made this video for the Bad Brains. I want to give it to you because I want you guys to use it to promote the band, you know? That's the, that's the kind of community hardcore was. There was no... 
there was no structure to it. Everybody participated in a way to promote this music that you loved. Um, in the early days, you know, take Boston, for instance, where I was a college kid there, and that's how I got into the scene. It was like, you know, in the early days, if you wanted, if you saw hardcore one Sunday afternoon and loved it, you couldn't wait to tell your friends about it, and you really had to help make another show happen because you had to find like a hall somewhere or a, a, like a VFW hall or a basement somewhere. So the audience was intense. The audience was invested. The audience wanted to make sure they could hear more of this. And, and, and that was, that, that's the sense of community that, that Stephen Blush is, is talking about. And I think as we went around and, and sat down with people like Greg Ginn and Jack Grisham, you know, these are people that if MTV called them and said, we want to do an interview, they probably wouldn't call them back. Has we Greg Ginn done any interviews? There was this ethic, that, that ethic, that sense of respect from within this tight-knit community, it was kind of still there. It was, it was, it, they were fond of it. Has Greg done any interviews recently? Like, I haven't seen any. Had he done any? Are, is anybody else working on anything else? Do you know of? I, I don't know. Greg just kind of runs by his own rules. You know what I'm saying? My rules. It was, you know, he, uh, he lived that. It was really, you know, it was really and, weird, Stephen, to hear Greg Ginn say the word Henry Rollins. It was just weird for him to say Henry Rollins, because I've heard Rollins <laughs> talk about Ginn, but just to hear Ginn say Henry Rollins, did Ginn hint to anything about a reunion, or did he talk about the reunion he had where I don't think any of the original singers came back for the reunion that they had a few years ago? Did he say well, anything know, about Paul, that? Paul and I have all things happened to in L.A. when they did that, those couple nights at the Olympic with uh, Dez and Greg and and uh, Robo, and you know it wasn't. It, you know, I, I I thought it was pretty good. I might be the only person you know who who would say that, but I, I thought you know we both thought it was awesome. Have and, Greg Ginn uh, and Henry Rollins talked? Do you know if they've talked? In the last... I, don't, I don't. I don't think you know. I, I I can't say, but it doesn't seem to me like there's been much communication. Uh, you know, between the parties, and I doubt there'll be a reunion. But that you know who. You know, maybe this film will help in that way. I would love to. Were you guys at the SST warehouse? Like, were you at an actual warehouse where there was actual product? Is there product? Absolutely. That's where we were. Is there product still stacked up there, like old albums and stuff like that? Well, they yep. have. It's maybe it's a little more organized now. They they have like shelves now. <laughs> but it was you know. a, warehouse, a true warehouse, right, Paul? Yeah, it's no. it's a true warehouse of shelves of, of and, and 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 you know vinyl and cassettes and CDs and T-shirts. It's all there. You know, it's it's a. You know, and it's great that it's there. You know, what? Are there? There's maybe three labels left from that era, or, or you know, a handful. You know, you have SST, you have Discord. Um, you know, there's a handful of labels that still operate on that level. How much Henry Rollins fighting footage did you have to choose from in the movie American Hardcore? And again, well, we're well, speaking actually, here to that piece of footage is incredible. I mean, it, it, it just goes to show that. You know, there were no rules in hardcore. And, and, I mean, what band today would lean down and beat up their fans, you know? It's, it's just, it was an intense time. And he was picked on a lot. He really, really was. Uh, people almost expect, wanted to get that out of him. He was teased, in a way, you know? Where did but, you find that particular footage? Was that sent in by a fan? Was that supplied by Greg Ginn? This is footage, if anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, from the movie American Hardcore, where Henry Rollins is wailing on a fan and he's getting... This is some Rollins fighting footage. Yeah, this is from Philadelphia. Um, this was footage shot by a guy in Philadelphia by the name of Stephen I, who happened to shoot almost every show in Philadelphia between late 81 or 82 and, and all the way through 83. So he was one of the people who had the, this, this archive of the early years, because that's what's rare. Once you hit 84, there's tons of footage. You know, everybody in the band had somebody with a video camera by then. But 80 to 83... Video cameras were expensive, and, and the stuff is very rare. Stephen, what did you feel about Black Flag, Black Flag roadie Mugger bragging how Black Flag made him independently wealthy? That was kind of wild, how a roadie from Black Flag is kind of bragging of how rich he got off Black Flag. Well, what he's, he's saying is, you know, uh, hey, look at me. Who, who would have thought this kind of, like, a, basically an abused kid runaway uh, who... Became, you know, became the black flag, you know, roadie and everything else, and you know, worked his way up the hierarchy and 
when he bailed, he got a bunch of money, and he he was right there when high tech stocks happened to have hit. And he is between that and his account. I think a master's at accounting now, um, and professor teaching and all that stuff. He is, but uh, he is independently well, as he says, he's independently wealthy from that investment from SST. And I can't, you know. Did you guys feel about exploring the dark side of SST? For instance, Black Flag fighting, I think it was Unicorn Records, where they couldn't release something for a whole bunch of years and they had to go out on the road. I didn't see that covered in American Hardcore. Well, and also, actually, I did. Greg talks about that a little bit. On uh, that'll be on the DVD. You know, we we you know the film. We wanted to keep the film at a manageable length in terms of keeping it around ninety to hundred minutes. It's hundred minutes, and and you know the DVD is going to have like another almost two hours hours of stuff, maybe another hour and 10 minutes of interview excerpts and more stories. And, and there's going to be a lot of full length um, songs like some, you know, we use a lot of excerpts from songs like we'll show 15, 20 seconds of a song. But on the DVD, you're going to get the full length of that from the early archive footage. So we do go into that. But, you know, when you're editing a film, you want to keep the flow going. And we wanted to try to cover as much ground in terms of explaining how this movement spread through the United States and, and not only just talk about L.A., New York, and Boston. We, want, we really wanted to try to to show how the movement spread nationally. So it was just an editorial choice. You know, you could do that story in itself could take 20 minutes in a film, you know. Paul and Stephen of American Hardcore playing in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada right now. Any questions? 604-822-2487. 604-UBC-CITR. If you have any questions for Stephen or Paul from American Hardcore and Caller, are you there? Hello, Nardwar. Go ahead to Stephen and Paul from American Hardcore, playing now in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Hello, Stephen and Paul. It's an honor to talk to you. How are you doing? Hey, How are you doing? doing? Um, I wanted to, you just mentioned, uh, you know, go, like smaller towns and whatnot. Was there a town that you discovered that blew your mind in terms of you never expected a tiny town like blank to be to have such a scene and whatnot. Like what well, town do, had do you like mean, uh, in retrospect like in retrospect time, yeah. or in retrospect. Yeah, in retrospect. Um I will ask Paul this too, but I, I am I'm very impressed with Milwaukee as far as being a kind of a you know, a, a small scene but very kind of Mark, you know, very pretty intellectual as as far as underground music goes, mm-hmm. and um, you know, pretty good town for that. Good, good bands, uh, active scene. I think that that was that was probably a nice surprise for me. Um, you know, I had traveled a little bit back in the day, and I remembered what good towns like Salt Lake City was. And uh, you know, we do give uh, props to Salt Lake. Did Salt Lake City and, uh, actually have a hardcore scene? Oh, yeah. There was a very small scene there, and it was a band called the Massacre Guys, who we show on the map. And those are guys who uh, went on to play in Descendants, Carl Alvarez and I'm forgetting the other guy's name, but two of the four guys from, from the Descendants come from this band in Salt Lake. Oh, and wow. so uh, there was um, a little was bit of a scene, and I was at a show in 1983, and it was... It was definitely nasty and debaucherous and, and very punk rock, i got to say. Now, I think the caller probably is a fan, as we all are on CITR and people that listen to CITR, of the band Negative Land. And this is something that's always <laughs> tainted me about SST, how Greg Ginn sued his own band, Negative Land, <laughs> on SST. How can you use Greg Ginn as a credible sort of witness to hardcore from what he did to Negative Land? What do you guys think about the SST versus this negative land thing where you Greg Ginn I took... I don't know. I, now that you mentioned, I do remember there was something about it. I do know that, you know, look, with a lot of these people, you really have to disconnect their, their music from their deeds. You know what I'm saying? You can't talk about the Bad Brains or Black Flag or, you know, a lot of these bands. You know, if you, if you, if you do separate, you know, part of the reason, you know, if, if they were really good people, they'd be accountants or lawyers or, or ministers or something like that. You know what I'm saying? It was like, kind of a bummer. You, you, you do get, 
It was kind of a bummer, though. It was kind of a bummer, though. It was kind of a bummer, though. It was kind of a bummer, though, Stephen, in the fact that SST here was suing Negative Land, and SST put all these great bands, Sonic Youth even, and here they are suing Negative Land. It's kind of a bummer, and it's kind of a bad taste. How do you recommend people getting bad tastes out of their mouths? Well, you know, I think that... um Again, you know, I don't think the, the the public or anybody really knows the true story behind that. You know, um, it, it's again, like Stephen says, you know, you have to separate the deeds from from the music. And I think you listen to the music, and you get you get amped up with this music, and you get adrenaline filled with the music, and uh, it's kind of forgivable. I mean, look at the Bad Brains. The Bad Brains have this incredible career, incredible music. They take the music to another level. But they left a lot of debris behind them wherever they went. Um, you know, not making it to shows, showing up five hours late for a show, um, you know, disparity between the band members, like all this stuff. And then you go to a Bad Brain show and you get so inspired and it's just everything you're looking for in this music and it's forgivable because as artists, they're really incredible. The same thing for Greg Ginn, you know? Black Flag had five singers, but the music was Greg Ginn's. The and the best singer from Black Flag, and the best singer from and the best singer from Black Flag, Paul, of course, was. Well, uh, you know, I, I liked uh, them all. Des Cadena was great, and uh, and Henry was great. Now, who would I, I never s- saw? You know, and who uh, would I, Reyes in the early might, days. Who would who would I say? They were all great. Who would I say is the best singer from Black Flag? Me from Vancouver, oh, British Columbia, say? Canada. Who would I say? Who would, uh, is that a question? Yeah, who would I say? Uh-huh. <laughs> who, who, would you, who would you say? Is the best well, you singer. Would, you would say Ron Reyes. Probably, I would, why? But, um, why would I, I say Ron Reyes? I, I didn't see him with no, Ron Reyes. No, why would I, I say... I him with Des Cadena. Why would I say Ron Reyes? Because uh, he had his time in, in uh, Vancouver. Yes, he lived in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Yeah. I just have to say that because right. I love Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Caller, are you still there? I am, sir. I want one more question in, if you don't mind, Narbor. Okay. Did you talk to anybody that went and saw the Bad Brains at CBGB's last week? Yes. Uh, yes, we, we talked to lots of people. Um, we tried to Paul, make that show. That? We were actually finishing our, our PR tour for the film in Boston and never made it to the third show. But... Um, we heard it was great. Yeah, we, particularly the last show, the third night, the one show we were trying to get to, and our flight was two and a half hours late, so we missed it. Uh, but, damn um, terrorists! We heard that was incredible, and they're going to they're going to get to get they're going to play more shows. They're going to. Um, yeah, the, the, the report go I had gotten it. was there was three nights. I heard the first night was not good at all. I heard the second night was good, and I heard the third night was tremendous. Well, thanks so much, caller, for phoning in, and do do the loot do do do. And you're still listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and an Ardwater Human Serviette Radio Show. And we're speaking here to Stephen Blush and Paul Rockman from American Hardcore, playing right now a movie about punk rock in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and all across the nation. The caller mentioned Bad Brains. In your interview with Bad Brains as HR in American Hardcore, I love in the background, it looks like there's a wedding going on in the background. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that was, um, uh, I shot uh, HR, uh, I think, in the summer of 2003. And um, I tracked him down in Los Angeles at the time, and, and we walked up to this park, and we say, you know, HR said, oh, let's do it here. He sat down, and he was great that day. He was so, he remembered all these details about the early days of when he started playing this music. And there was this, um, like, a Mexican wedding, like, they were d- taking pictures. And in the middle of HR's window interview, they started walking you know, into the background of the frame, and I wasn't going to stop HR. He was on a roll. And, you know, that's just what happened. And, you know, the, the film was made very much in the spirit of the music, kind of like how the music was was made. And it was like, well, that's it. That's what it is, and that's what it's going to be. So it, I, I wasn't going to start over again. It's neat looking for those little things in the movie, American Hardcore. For instance, like Keith Morris getting interviewed near the pool. Where was that? Is that his house? There's a big pool there. Mm. That, that's, that's where he works. A friend of uh, uh, ours, John Seidel, uh, that is his ha- house in the Hollywood Hills where they work. And yeah, they work works, for, works uh, for uh, V2 Records, I yeah, believe. Yeah, uh, uh, Keith works for V2 Records as a, uh, he's kind of like an A&R talent scout type of guy. And, and uh, 
John and him work out of their house and he actu- know, there's pools in all these houses in L.A. So. He actually signed a band from Vancouver called Blood Meridian to oh, okay. V2 Records. Keith Morris, all of the Circle Jerks are speaking here again to Stephen Blush and Paul Rockman from American Hardcore. 604-822-247, 604-UBC-CITR. If you have any questions for these gentlemen who are involved with American Hardcore. Now, another thing about the interviews, you interview Bobby Steele, a misfit type dude. He looks to be disguised. Is that in purpose? There's a shadow. <laughs> Is he trying to hide his identity? He was he was silhouetted. He had a light behind him, and I, I just thought it looked good. You know, it's um, it was just uh, it was just an artistic choice I, I, I made uh, while shooting him, and um, and you now, know, it's just a different way of, of of looking at things. But yeah, he's silhouetted. There's a light behind him. Now, Steve, yeah, actually, a lot of people said to us, because, "How did you get that really old Bobby Steele interview? That's like a twenty-year-old interview, right? He looks so good." <laughs> now, Stephen, did you try to get any other misfits? Because I know in your book, American Hardcore, you have Glenn Danzig in the book. How hard was it to get Glenn Danzig? You didn't get Glenn, Glenn Danzig. Could have you got Jerry only? Did you approach any misfits? Yeah, well, you know, we went through the whole thing, you know, and basically there's two bands who are not in the film, and it's, you know, the Dead Kennedys and the Misfits, and the problem was similar in both bands, that you have a total disconnect between the singer and the rest of the band, and if you, you know, you don't, if you don't talk to Glenn Danzig, do you really want, uh, do you really want Jerry Only to tell the story of the Misfits? I mean, that's an incomplete story, you know, so it's like... It's just kind of an, you know, it's, it's it's a sad thing that, you know, there's there's the great singer and then there's like the band itself that continues to tour and kind of drag the name through the mud because they're not really good bands. So we just had to make the choice not to do either. But, you know, both are people who we both worked with a lot over the years. You know, I've I've interviewed Glenn Danzig at least a half dozen times over the years, so... Was it hard to get Duff from Guns N' Roses, The Farts, and The Fastbacks? Was it hard to get through to his people? Like, hey, we have something important we want to talk to about punk rock. And the okay, people probably... all things that, uh, from my years as a music journalist, I did have this one L.A., uh, uh, like, in the total industry publicist that I knew. And uh, he, he made the connection happen for me. And I remember I brought Paul over to the office, and he just... Paul just started to shudder because he just got so creeped out because it reminded him of all that Hollywood, L.A. music business kind of yeah, stuff. I, yeah, I had a career in Hollywood. <laughs> I mean, you know, I still go back there a lot. I'm, I'm calling you from, from Los Angeles right now, but um, I had this music video career for 10 years after my hardcore days from like 88 to 96 maybe where I directed a lot of music videos of bands like Alice in Chains and Temple the Dog, and I was just so horrified. I became so horrified by how Hollywood operates and all that, all those Hollywood isms. And I remember going to this publicity company out in the San Fernando Valley. I think it was in Encino, and it just gave me the creeps because it just brought back all these horrible memories of these like Hollywood executives. <laughs> but about, it was that guy who got us the Duffy yeah, Kagan interview. interview. How about the guy from the Necros, Barry from Big Chief? Did you approach any Necros? Well, we certainly are big Necros fans, and the reason we see, uh, you know, that footage in there is because of Barry. You know, but we, um, you know, we, there's, we made this film as a totally independent situation. And then we got, you know, and at the end of last year, we got into Sundance, and then all of a sudden, you know, we played there, and we had this deal, and we had to get the film out. So we never actually made it to the Midwest. While I had been in touch with all those guys, and I got all their footage, we never actually made it. So... You know, I always felt like there were a few mid- Midwest interviews I wish we could have had in retrospect. But, you know, Barry is participating in the film and, you know, or you could have come music from him and footage. Or you so, could have come. Yeah, I'm definitely a fan of him from, like, I think you just mentioned Big Chief. And, you know, that, that was a great, great fan, too. Or you, know? you could have come to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, I guess, if you knew you'd get money from Sony or whatever and interviewed the subhumans or the Neos as we began on the uh, Nardwarty. Yeah, you know, there, you know in retrospect, there's, you, you could sit there and say, oh, there, here's, there's a dozen bands who you probably could have done, you know, and that's the truth, you know, but, you know, we do try to have them all represented in some ways, you know, I didn't get the subhumans, but obviously I'm, a, you know, it would be an amazing to interview Jerry Hanna, especially his whole history over the past you know, decade or so. You Although, know, so I guess I, people, um, I guess people I'm could. I'm definitely a fan. You know? I guess people could buy the book, couldn't they? Because it is in the book. Jerry Hanna is in the book, or Absolutely. at least there's mentions of Jerry Hanna in the book. Another thing that's in American hardcore is Christine. Now, is that Christine from Slug and Lettuce Zine? 
Who's um, the Christine? Christine Elise. Yes. Oh, Christine Elise. No, that's a that's that's um her that that's um. Springer's girlfriend back in the early days in Boston, the Springer, the singer of SSD, SSD Control, uh, Christina Lise uh, was his uh, girlfriend, and she, I think in the mid-80s, moved to California and became an actress and was on uh, that show, 90210, for like three, maybe four years. And you talked to her for a female perspective. Yeah, yeah, her and Kira Rossler, the bass player from Black Flag, and some other women from the Boston scene kind of represent the, 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 the female influence in, in the scene, which was hard. You know, for women, it was hard to, to really participate in this, this, move, this scene that was really driven by teenage boys, you know? It was... Um, but they were there. They, they were definitely there. You guys really are matchmakers, Paul and Stephen. You really are matchmakers. Did you cause an SSD control reunion to happen? I saw an SSD yep. control reunion yeah, on screen. We we were. Um, it was funny because we we knew that 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 um, uh, Springer, the singer, and Al Barrill. Uh, the guitar player and pretty much leader of the band hadn't talked in a long time, and as we were, and you'll see some of this footage in in the DVD. You know, we're, we were driving, we were on our way up to Boston, and we had planned to meet with Springer first, and then go on and interview Al Barrill. But of course, Springer was running late; we couldn't find him. You didn't show up, and and finally he calls, he calls in and apologizes. So we kind of we tell him we're on our way to Al's house, and he said, "Okay, I'm going to go over there." So he showed up unannounced at Al's house in the middle of our interview with Al. And in a way, we did kind of um, manipulate it a bit to happen. And it was great, because I think in the long run that it needed to happen. There's no reason why those guys should not be talking. <laughs> did you guys cause any other reunions to happen? Did we um, other reunions? Well, you know, at the New York premiere... You know, HR was in town. He was back in New York. Oh, yeah. He was rehearsing with the Bad Brains again. And I think, you know, we had Dr. No and Daryl Jennifer and HR see the film for the first time in New York. And I spoke to them after at our, we had a little uh, premiere party afterwards. And I, I told them, you know, this is a good time for you guys to, to reconnect and, 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 and go back out there and make it happen. And, uh, you know, and, and in a way, I think that this film is, is going to help them uh, get back together and, and go out there again. Stephen so in a way, that's yeah, kind of a reason. Stephen Blush and Paul Rockman from American Hardcore, 604-822-2487, 604-UBC-CITR, if you have any questions for Stephen or Paul. The movie's also playing in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada right now. What is a preview tape? What is a preview tape? Oh, that's what you, you got to see, a preview tape. Well, that's a tape that's sent out to people like you in the press or to film festivals. To, to you know, it's basically a tape that gets sent out before there's any uh, tape or DVD out. You know, and the what? film is only in theaters, so you got a tape that said preview tape on it, and it's just to kind of protect it from being pirated. It doesn't just say preview tape. Occasionally it says property of... Sony Picture Classics. Yeah, well, they're our distributor. I mean, make no mistake about it. Sony Picture Classics could never have made this movie. This movie was literally made in the basement somewhere over five years. Nobody saw this film before it went to Sundance. Um, I took Steven's book around um, to a couple of production companies in 2000, and I was taking this book around with, you know, a picture of a kid with a bloody face on it, and nobody got it. You know, no movie company was like, well, that's not too attractive. That's not a movie I want to make. So um, literally, we, we made this film out of the system. We world premiere at Sundance. Nobody had seen the film, and Sony Picture Classics, which is a, a fantastic distributor, loved the movie, and were honored to be to be uh, to be distributed by them. But they they did not ask us to change one single frame of the film. They have had no creative input on the film at all whatsoever. The film we finished in December of 2005 and brought to Sundance in January of 2006 and they acquired is the same film. But Paul... It maybe looks a little better, but it's it, but creatively, so you know they're they're a great distributor, and it finally, finally, hardcore music gets to come out of its hole a little bit and explain this this 
this missing link, this, this piece of music history and, and subculture history that's not really been told properly. But Paul, they did add something to it. Do you know what they added? Some hilarity to the preview tape because, as you mentioned, it says property of Sony Picture Classics. Now, this only pops up a couple times Mm -hmm. during the preview tape, but on the tape that I saw, it was quite hilarious because it flashed just as Ian Mackay of Fugazi (laughs) and Minor Threat was speaking. So here it is, Ian Mackay Kai speaking, and it says property of Sony Picture Classics. And in another time, it shows his band, the Teen Idols, and where does it pop up? Right there again. Sony Picture Classics. I never never saw one of those preview tapes. Um, We supplied them one where it just says preview tape, and they added that other graphic. I never saw that, but that's pretty funny. That's just a god playing... uh, playing a joke on uh, Ian Mackay. Yeah, it's great that it's right over Ian Mackay. DIY God. Well, they own it for 20 years. Okay. You know, they, they, we, Stephen and I own the film. They have exclusive rights for the film for 20 years. Well, I hope they keep making the preview tapes for another 20 because it's absolutely <laughs> amazing. Now, Stephen and Paul, was it hard to clear all the music? I read that you guys did have that hard time to control all the music, i.e. to put all the music in your actual movie because most of the bands owned it. Who didn't own their music? And which bands did you have a hard time getting a hold of the music? We, well, we didn't have a hard time with anyone because we had had 90, you know, there's like 89 pieces of music, I think, in this film, or 84 pieces of music, and, you know, 99% of that music is owned by the bands, uh, by the songwriters and the bands. So, uh, you know, people, there are a couple of bands like... um, uh, like TSOL had a couple of songs that were controlled by a publisher, and the Bad Brains had a couple of songs on EMI, and those big publishing houses fell right in line with our Favored Nations deal. Everybody on this film got paid the same amount of money for their music. Now, how about the footage? Was there any dream footage that you guys wished you could have used? For instance, like Fear playing on Saturday Night Live. What dream footage do you wish you could have used? You know, the Fear footage on Saturday Night Live, frankly, is way overpriced. And um, that's been seen. It was on national television. It's been documented. We wanted to... This film is about... the, the undocumented time. This film is about an era that people have not really understood and we wanted to show footage that nobody has ever seen so you know frankly you know paying uh, NBC uh, $7,000 to use a few seconds of that just wasn't worth it it had already been seen by how many no, you know millions of people how about that LA punk news footage you show <laughs> of a riot was that hard uh, to get a hold of that was um, that we got that from CNN and, you know, that wasn't overpriced. That was good. That was a good thing to have. It really put everything into context in terms of the police situation in Los Angeles. And um, we got that from, from CNN uh, Image Source, or their, their archival division. Now, and, uh, they were very cooperative. They were great. Now, looking at the footage in American Hardcore, did you guys put any effects on the footage so it looked all the same? Because it has a certain quality to it. Did you add any extra effects to no, any of the footage? very it was very important that well inherently the film takes on a different look when you put it on to 35 millimeter negative you know actual celluloid but it was you know we i really set out technically to keep the footage as crappy looking as possible because that's the way it really looked (laughs) you know so there is no consistency in the look you're really looking at you know uh, there's a lot of super eight stuff, there's a lot of 16 millimeter stuff, and then there's a lot of VHS footage that was shot in like the eight hour mode, the super slow mode, so it's very grainy and very, you know, very uh, almost unwatchable, but that's, that gives you a feeling there's a subtext to that look that's very important to understanding what this was about. Now, so we, we tried to keep it crappy. Stephen, you have contacts from a lot of hardcore people. Could have you got better footage if you asked? Like, I know there was better DOA footage. Could have you got better footage if you asked? And will you put any of this on the DVD? Well, um, again, it was stuff that we found in our research, some stuff that uh, you know, we've given to Joey because he didn't even have it. But um, I know there is better DOA footage. We, I know there is better DOA footage yeah, than is exemplified. Yeah, but that stuff has probably been seen. No, it hasn't been seen. Like, I know stuff that hasn't been seen well, we, we that could have been we on there. We were in very close touch with Joey, and, you know, and we did use 
actually, no, we didn't use anything of his, but we, we did license music. But we were always in contact with him, so either... You know, we we did totally discuss the subject with him. So you did go through get footage from him. When you you really wanted to show, we really wanted a huge footage that that had that kind of do-it-yourself feeling and ethic. So to us, if we found DOA footage that was shot on on a shaky camera in the back of the room, that worked better in terms of explaining what the scene was in the early days. It was, you know, the the archival material from 80 to 83 is very unprofessional, you know? The good footage you're talking about, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, might be from a little bit later. But the early days, there were very few people documenting this. No, the DOA footage from Vancouver is like 1979, 80, oh, okay. with Chuck Biscus coming. We did see some stuff on one of his DVDs. Um, yeah, he, 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 DVDs. You know, that's why we didn't put it out, was he did give, give us stuff, but it's the stuff they all released on that. Um, he, he had a, the he had a DVD, home DVD out where there is some footage. Well, I really it. like what you guys did in the reenactments. For instance, you <laughs> made stuff up. I like it. Like, you didn't have any footage, so you just made stuff up. For instance, the reenactment, maybe you could explain a bit about this, of Ian Mackay of Fugazi. Gluing together ten oh, animation, yeah, ten thousand dollars seven inches. I think that's great. Like Ian Fugazi and glue, they probably did get high on glue. They <laughs> sing about not liking glue, but they probably did get high gluing yep. ten thousand seven inches together. Yeah, on for minor threat. And you guys reenact this with neat motion graphics? Yes, we use some animation. Uh, there's a, a friend of mine in New York, John Bondrasic, who's an animator, and. Uh, we just felt that we needed to, um, like, we weren't going to ask Ian Mackay today to sit down and give him the tools to reenact that. That would have been corny. But using graphics and the repetitive motion in the animation was, just tells the story so clearly. I love the trivia in American Hardcore, the book. I really do love the trivia, Stephen, in the actual book. For instance, you talk about Detroit, and you mention the romantics when you talk yeah. about Detroit. Like, I like you the way you give a background. You also have that story about Jello getting a BMW for a wedding gift. I interviewed Jello and asked him about that, and he said, no, that necessarily wasn't true. Maybe that's why he wasn't in the movie. But still, I love the rumors. I love the. I, I, you know what? I, I have to say, man, I, I stayed at the ha- you know, I stayed at his house, and, you know, there was a car covered up in the back, in the back and it was apparently a wedding gift. Uh, and I knew that that was, you know, I mean, if he doesn't want to talk about that, that's a, you know, some, one of the problems, if I, if I had a problem with anything with American hardcore, was like, I kind of knew too much, you know, and it's probably, you know, most, most writers are just researchers, you know, I did live this to a degree, you know, so I do know a lot of stuff that I probably shouldn't know, and, you know, sometimes a lot of people don't want their, their, their public, you know, their, their personal life, you know, uh, bared in public, you know. Interestingly and a lot of enough, you know, most people don't like their biographers. It's now, really, you know, that's just a kind now. Of interestingly enough, there is a connection between Jello Biafra and cars that I read about in the book "Going Underground" by Ger- George Herchala. Have you heard of that book? At I've all, heard Stephen. of the book. I haven't read it. Uh, it came or, out like last year, I heard. Yeah. Yes, where he talks about how the Dead Kennedys got a spent sponsorship from Budget Rent-A-Car, if they mentioned Budget Rent-A-Car in one of their songs, or put a picture of a Budget Rent-A-Car logo or something on the insert for one of the records. And I asked Jello about this, and he told a little story. So I love the little tidbits from the book Going Underground, and also, I mean, two interesting books. But I would like to ask you a little bit about Going Underground, the book Going Underground, because I read an interview... In Razor Cake Fanzine, number 40, on page 39, with George Herchella. Have you had any dealings with George Herchella at all? Never heard of him, George. No, not, I, I haven't, no. He is the author of this book, Going Underground, and he says, I thank Steve Blush from the bottom of my heart for setting the bar so low. The, tra- the, tra- the tragedy. Well, we take that as a compliment. The, tra- the tragedy is that the bulk of his book was fine and a solid oral history that could have been like, please kill me. But he destroyed so much of his credibility by mixing all his own inane off base and often flat out wrong writing into the book. It should have been just interviews. Okay, well, he's, he's entitled to his call, but I, what, the reason for, for my uh, telling of 
stories of people is just because I did have that bit of information. And, you know, I, I do have to I said I don't know the guy I've ever read his book, and you know, uh, but I do have to say that um, most of the stuff that I've read on punk rock since of people who who weren't there and do research, they have it wrong a lot of the time because history often this was not a documented history. This was like um, you remember as a kid. I don't know if you play. There was a game of telephone where you would sit and you'd whisper in each other's ear something. And by the time it got around the circle, it would be a, it would be the the history would be wrong. Well, like, there's an um, explanation for this. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Yeah, there you go. But according to this interview in Razor Cake Fanzine, number forty, page thirty nine, continuing on, George does know you because it said Blush didn't want me to put out my book as competition to his, and he challenged me years ago on how many interviews I'd done compared to him, suggesting that because he had done more interviews, I had done nothing to add what he'd already done. You know what, this guy, if that's actually what he said, he's mentally ill, because I have no idea who this person is. Who is the competition for American Hardcore? There was that movie, Punk, and I saw that movie, Punk, by Don Letts, and they did make one slight mistake on the bonus DVD section when they were talking about the band The Teen Idols, featuring Ian Mackay, and they showed a picture of Teen Idols, but it was the wrong Teen Idols. It was like a researcher did a Google search and brought up the Teen Idols from the 1990s. Well, yeah, because you know why? That film was was produced well Don Letts is a great filmmaker but he's an English guy he's from England and that film is very clear on everything you know British but he knows nothing about you know American punk that happened after that and you know that film was just you know like you said they used researchers to find some stuff out and you know American hardcore our movie is called American hardcore we don't talk about British punk in this film what other punk movies are out there Stephen for people to check out aren't you working on a movie called Get Thrashed uh, no I was actually interviewed for that documentary I certainly have nothing to do with it how about like, the up- uh, how about the upcoming Germs movie what do you guys feel about the upcoming what Lexicon Devil is there going to be an upcoming movie about the band the Germs yeah well, you mean there's uh, like a the- like a uh, there's a couple like there's with a, actors and stuff you mean. yeah there's a, a narrative film about the Germs and I think there's also a documentary coming out but I'm, I'm I don't know too much about those films I haven't seen them or, or anything yet but yeah there there listen there there's always been movies. You know, there was, a, you know, Decline of Western Civilization 1 was at the dawn of this American hardcore movement, and they had Black Flag in it, you know, at the dawn. There's always going to be movies. There's always going to be storytellers, and um, it goes on. Our, our film has its own place in all that. Stephen, you inspired people with the book American Hardcore. The movie American Hardcore must have inspired some people already. What has American Hardcore inspired already? Did you inspire the Hardcore Hall of Fame, Stephen? Uh, you mean Harley's, Harley's, Harley's Hardcore Hall of Fame? Yes. Um, maybe we did. I mean, yeah, I think he said that at one point, you know, but, uh, you know, what, what, look, whatever we could inspire is good, you know. You know, Hardcore was not about, like, everybody agreeing on, and, and you know, everybody said there was all this great unity. You know, it, it wasn't really, you know, it really wasn't about that. It was about, like, who could bring it. You know, and uh, whatever it, it whatever it inspires, that's that's good. Hopefully, American hardcore it, it inspires teenage kids to get angry again, because you know there was a certain climate in the early '80s. You know, we were of this generation that we weren't baby boomers and we weren't Gen Xers. We were in between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. We were uh, American kids who had been disenfranchised from you know, the so-called American dream, and, and we were pissed off, and we didn't, we didn't conform, and we did our own thing, and, and these bands created a movement from nothing, from obstacles at every turn. And I hope people, you know, I hope young people today can get inspired by the film and the book and, and, and kind of ask themselves, hey, why aren't kids today this angry? Why aren't kids today taking action in a way that... That, that, that is necessary. I mean, in, in the United States right now, we, we once again have this kind of neoconservative, almost kind of fascist-like <clears throat> government, and, and the kids seem complacent. And we have a caller. Caller, are you there? No, I'm 
You have a question for Stephen and Paul from American Hardcore. Winding up here in an Nardwari Human Survey Radio Show. Go ahead, caller. Uh, oh, yeah, to, this, to the last couple sentences, to the whole idea why, why this movie make them, make, make them angry, you know, because this, this, thing, this thing is this thing. Yeah, it's important. I think, you know, if anything, I don't know if you've seen the, the film, Caller, but I, I think that, you know, while, while Stephen Blush and I don't address the current state of punk rock or the current state of, of, of things in the United States right now, the subtext is there. You know, this is strictly a historical film, but, yeah, you know, yeah, I remember it, are yeah. similar, and there's, there's something different now. I, I think that um, the audience is not as intense anymore, and it needs to be, because it's the audience, it's the fans, it's the kids who, who latch on to something who end up making the difference, not the artists. Well, thank you very much for phoning in, caller, and doot-doot-a-loot-doo. And you're still listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, Cable 102, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, the Nardwari Human Survey Radio Show. Thank you, Stephen and Paul, directors, producers, writers, the people behind American Hardcore playing right now in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, for phoning in to the Nardwari Human Survey Radio Show. And other products, I have to ask you about product placement here, is the product known as the newspaper. Stephen, you wrote for the Times of London. What did you write for the Times of London? From the slam pit to the Times of London. Yeah, we'll talk about punk rock all the way to the top. I wrote about uh, Mike Watt and Weed Jam Akano, the, the film. Um, you know what I'm talking about, right? I do indeed. And yeah, one of the yeah. other punk rock films is out there on DVD right That's now. That's a Canadian film. Those are Canadian filmmakers, I think. Right? I think there was a connection, too, because you interviewed Mike Watt in a van, and I think they interviewed Mike yeah, Watt in a Mike van. Mike Watt gives the same interview. He has his stick down, you know. He has the same shirt on, the same van. It's pretty funny. Now, what I'm going to end right now on an Nardwari Human Serviette radio show with is is Mr. Epp and their song Mohawk Man. Now, I am, <laughs> All right. I am awesome. so happy that you guys interviewed Mark Arm from Mudhoney, who of course was the singer in Mr. Epp with Mohawk Man, <laughs> yep. who actually told me a few stories of Mr. Epp not going over too well at some hardcore gigs. What can you say about Mr. Epp and their song Mohawk Man and those type of bands and Mark Arm of Mudhoney? Well, I, I think the best way to describe uh, Mr. Epp, um, which was Mark Arm of Mudhoney's first band, was they're kind of the flipper of Seattle. They were, you know, the band that you would love to hate. And they had that song Mohawk Man, which is just totally, total confrontation against punk rockers. <laughs> I mean, they're screaming Mohawk Man, you know, at, at all these kids with mohawks, you know. And so it was, uh, there was a, a definitely art brute going on, even though I'm sure they didn't know it. Stephen and you Paul know? from American Hardcore, anything else you want to add to the people out there? Why should people care about American Hardcore playing now in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada? Well, you know, go see the film and see if there's something, you know, like you said, Nardwar, you, you, you went to see the film and you're very knowledgeable and you learned a few things. And, and you know, we really concentrate on these early years of, of how this, this music kind of started. And um, hopefully kids today can go, can go see this film and, and maybe understand it a little better and be inspired. Well, thanks so much, Stephen and Paul. Keep on rocking in the free world and doot-doot-a-loot-doo. Doot-doo. Thank you, Nardwar. Thanks so much. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. Take care.
Mohawk 